This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Buffy St. Marie is an accomplished pop culture trailblazer. She helped educate a generation about indigenous people and issues. She claims to be Cree and has said her identity is tangled by adoption, the 60s scoop in Canada, and lost documents. But those claims are called into question by a comprehensive investigation that finds no indigenous ancestry. We're talking about what this means for St. Marie, her fans, and the demand for authentic indigenous identity. We're back after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Federal officials from the U.S. and Canada plan to meet with Montana and British Columbia tribes over coal mining pollution. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton has more on the meeting. The U.S. State Department and Global Affairs Canada will meet with the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes and the Tanaha Nation on November 9th. The meeting aims to address selenium pollution coming from tech resources coal mining operations along the Elk River. The Elk River flows into Lake Kukanusa and the Kootenai River in Montana. Selenium pollution is known to harm fish reproduction. The tribes want the issue to be settled by the International Joint Commission, which handles transboundary water disputes between the U.S. and Canada. CSKT Chairman Tom McDonald hopes IJC involvement would eventually lead to the closure of Tex mines. We would want to make sure that, that they're going to immediately cease and, and, and desist from their actions that are causing an increase in pollution. The meeting comes after President Joe Biden and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced that a deal to address selenium pollution would come by summer's end. That deadline was never met. McDonald says it's possible that a deal could be struck at this month's meeting. Amarin Bolton. Kodiak's Alutic Museum in Alaska recently acquired a newly minted at Cook, a kind of traditional clothing. KMXT's Brian Venois has more. An at Cook is a type of traditional Alutic clothing. This one kind of looks like a black floor-length dress with red stripes and white fur. Amanda Lancaster is a curator of collections at the Alutic Museum. Snowballing parka is what these are sometimes known as, and when someone is dancing, wearing it, you see, you know, the ermine tails just sort of sway, and it really does look like, you know, snow falling. The Atcook was commissioned by the museum about a year ago, and staff received the new piece just a few weeks ago. She says once they had the funding, they talked to a local artist to help them fill the gap in their collections. We have never had a traditional Atcook like this. The commission was funded through a grant from the Rasmussen Foundation, which awards grants to Alaska-based nonprofits and tribes. Lancaster says commissioning pieces helps the museum have one of the most complete collections on Aleutic culture in the world. It's a really good chance to see, like, what, what are the holes in our collection that maybe there are Aleutic cultural materials in other museums that we do not have that we would, you know, like to get. Lancaster says adding to their collections will be a major help in continuing revival movements after historic suppression. The Aleutic Museum is currently undergoing major renovations, though, so the public will have to wait to see the Atcook in person until they reopen in 2025. I'm Brian Venois. The chief of the Confederated Tribes of Coos, Lower Umpqua, and Sayaslaw Indians died this weekend. KLCC's Brian Bull has this remembrance of Doc Slider. Chief Donald Doc Slider was fond of carving and playing Native American flutes. He's heard playing one of his creations in a 2018 recording for KLCC. 
Brenda Brainerd is a fellow tribal member who worked with Slider on restoring federal recognition for their people in the 1980s. She says he battled cancer in his final years. What will always stand out to me with Doc was his smile. He just had the cutest, sweetest little smile, and it kind of had a hint of impishness with it. But what I remember most about him was his quietness. He was very calm. He was a very humble man. Slider was also a U.S. Army veteran. In a statement, U.S. Representative Val Hoyle said Slider's spirit and his memory leave a legacy of resilience and hope. I'm Brian Bull. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by AARP. AARP creates and connects people to unique tools and programs, helps conserve personal resources, and tackles issues that matter most to individuals, families, and communities. More at aarp.org. Support by Drummond Woodsum a full-service law firm whose nationally recognized tribal nations practice provides services to tribal nations and their enterprises and to companies that do business with tribes across the country. More at dwmlaw.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Fans of Buffy St. Marie are coping with revelations in an investigation by the CBC's The Fifth Estate about the famed singer-songwriter's Native identity. Her entire career as an artist was built around a narrative that she was born on a reserve in Canada and adopted by a non-Native couple in Massachusetts. The news show presents documents and interviews that suggest St. Marie has little to no Native ancestry. One of those documents is a birth certificate indicating she was born to the parents she said adopted her. Before we begin, I want to play a discussion I had with Buffy St. Marie almost exactly a year ago before the investigation came out. She was giving interviews in connection with the release of a PBS documentary about her life and her music. We identified her then as Cree because that was the prevailing wisdom available. At the same time, we were aware that there were lingering questions about her identity. Before the show started, I asked her what she was comfortable talking about in that regard, and here's what she said. We're going to go ahead and hold off. We're going to play that here in just a moment. Um, I want to go ahead and introduce our guests now. Joining us from Maple Creek in Saskatchewan, Canada, is Michelle Good. She's an author, retired lawyer, and an activist. She's a member of the Red Pheasant Cree Nation. Hello, Michelle. Welcome to Native America Calling. Well, hello, and thank you for having me. And joining us from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, is Dr. Kim Talbert. She is the Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Peoples, Technoscience and Environment, and a professor of Native Studies at the University of Alberta. She's Sistan Wapton Oyate. Kim, welcome back to Native America Calling. It's great to have you. Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me on. 
Absolutely. Well, this issue today, it just really has Native folks wound up. We had over 500 comments when we posted the interview excerpt that we're going to play shortly on Facebook. Strong, strong opinions, both in support of Buffy St. Marie, against her, and of course the jokes, the one-liners, the memes, they just keep rolling in. So, Kim, let's go ahead and start with you. Just What's your initial reaction here uh, when this story broke last month? Uh, Buffy St. Marie, 80 years old, all these years. What were your thoughts? Well, I've known about this case for nearly a year because I was interviewed uh, in the production of The Fifth Estate probably last spring or winter. And uh, I was told um, that the case was uh, being researched quite a while ago. So was I'm trying to remember what my reaction was. I'm an analyst of uh, self-indigenization or pretendianism. So I look at this as one among many cases. And once I got a glimpse of the evidence uh, during the production of The Fifth Estate, I saw familiar patterns. So I was not surprised for very long once I saw those patterns. But I'm not your usual native uh, viewer of this case either. Mm -hmm. Now, besides doubts, some of these rumblings that were on social media and about her native identity, it took about a year for this ABC investigation into her past to completely be completed and research all these claims. And, and why does it take so long to get information like this? And um, I mean, most of us assume that her parents would have spoken up if her story was so dramatically different than what she presented. Um, Sean, you're going in and out for me, so I'm going to try to respond. Uh, I hope I sound okay. Um, okay. These, and it's not simply what happens in the in the press, right? The press can take an hour, uh, a year. Uh, it can take many months. I'm often interviewed many, many months ahead of these cases breaking. It's also what's been brewing in community. So as long as it takes in the press, people have probably been circulating information about Buffy St. Marie and her dubious claims for decades. Uh, these these stories are many, many years in the making before they get to the newspapers. Okay, let's go ahead and uh, we're going to play this clip now. This was a, an interview, a pre-interview for a show I did with Buffy St. Marie about a year ago. For the Pine Pines had lots of girls and my sister. Are you comfortable talking about your biological parents, Buffy? Do you ever talk about them? I just didn't notice anything in any of the in information I read. Well, who knows who they were? I'm adopted. They don't tell you. If you're adopted, yeah. number one, you don't have an you have an you have a birthday that's assigned by the court. So that means you don't have a horoscope. <laughs> and it, you know, if you're adopted, you don't know who you are, who you were. They don't tell you. It's almost like the residential schools. You know, it was the the uh the what they call the 60s school <laughs> began long before the 60s um and the people who were running it you know they thought they were doing a good thing like they thought they were doing a good thing with residential schools they Do weren't search though on your own i mean because you know how native you try you try yeah i have tried i've tried and um in the 60s especially i was trying hard because after i was um I, when i was taken in at pie parts when i was uh, adopted into pie parts we did, we knew we you know Emil pie part and i your whole family we all knew that, that we had no idea if i was a blood relative we did not know that was not the point that that's thinking like a white guy <laughs> um no it has nothing to do with the system and inherit, you know, in, in inheritance rights. 
<laughs> you know, the Lord passing on his, no, it has nothing to do with that kind of stuff. No, for the Pipots had lost two girls and my sister Brenda was the first one they found and adopted. And okay. I was the second one several years later that they, they invited into their family. So it had nothing to do with like property rights and the things that the official adoption deal with. But a side effect of that is that, um, you know, as, as we're discussing today, when you're adopted, you don't really know. You don't really know. Right. You, you might. I mean, in some cases of official adoption, you know, where you go to the adoption agency and you fill out a form. No, that's not how it was done. It was, And it was all sealed by the court. And, and it was somewhat shameful and they were trying to protect us, you know, oh, maybe somebody will know she's an Indian. Yeah. You know, it was the 40s. Yeah. Thankfully, yeah. things have changed. Things are a little different, you know. And with but even... I am very lucky. I am very lucky, Sean, because I had two families. I I had I have had two families. My first family had some predators in the family in the in the male line for sure. But the women in that family were very wonderful to me, and I'm lucky enough to have had two families. So, and I'm still close to both. Uh huh. Are you so your bio? So your adopted parents and your your adopted siblings. My first adopted parents. <laughs> first adopted parents. They're I, I imagine they're they're past, right? No, no, no. Oh, oh, yes, my adoptive my first adoptive parents who raised me as a child have passed on. Yes, passed on. But your yes. siblings, your adopted siblings, are they still alive? My bad big brother is in the next world somewhere. I hope somebody's teaching him better manners. Um, and my 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 sister, my little sister, we're close friends. Wow. But I left. I left when she was about. I think she was about ten when I went away to college and really didn't go back. Okay. So, but my my other family, my Cree adoptive family, who who took me in in my early twenties, were very close. That's Buffy St. Marie a year ago talking about her native heritage. I play that because it fits with her explanation throughout most of her career. She talks about being adopted. She talks about sealed records. She references the 60 scoop. And she mentions that there is an indigenous family connection that transcends any documents that are or are not available. And Kim, I, I want to ask you, I mean, that was just a short discussion before we went to air a year ago. What stands out for you from what you just heard from Buffy St. Marie? Well, I mean, you do hear the familiar patterns, right, of uh, not not knowing. Um, I've also been privy, you know, to many of the different explanations she's given over time. So it's hard for me to hear that one in isolation, right? We see shifting stories, shifting facts, shifting claims. Um, the you know, the the avowal that that she doesn't know when in fact she clearly signed documentation with her birth date on it and her place of birth and her parents. So even if there were doubts about those being her biological parents, it seems that in 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 disclosing the full truth, she would have said, well, I do in fact have a birth certificate and this is my official birth date, but we don't know for sure if that's true. Instead, she says she doesn't know. And she knew something, right? Uh, so she's telling us a partial truth at best there, even if you want to believe that the birth certificate revealed on the fifth estate uh, has problems with it. And in your mind, is that birth certificate enough to prove her identity? It seems to close off this main claim that she was adopted. 
Right. I know there's a lot of doubt about the birth certificate, but there, they were pretty detailed in the fifth estate about the protocols of the uh, the town of Stoneham, uh, the protocols of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts around live birth certificates versus adoptive birth certificates. I think they could have gone a little more deeply into that. There is, as I understand it, about 180 pages of documentation uh, that, of course, they can't delve into in great detail on the fifth estate. I don't have any doubt that that is her live birth certificate. It has a doctor attesting to it being a live birth. Uh, if it were an adoptive birth certificate, it would uh, be framed a bit differently. And they did talk about that a bit, but I know they didn't go into it enough for some people. Okay. Kim, I'm reading all kinds of comments and people on social media saying, hey, just have her do a DNA test. If she does a DNA test, uh, that's all she has to do. Is it that simple? If she were to go get a DNA test, would that be definitive proof one way or the other? Well, she could do a sibling DNA test with Lainey St. Marie, her living sister, and that would show if she is her biological sister. Yes, she could do that. Then you still could probably have people saying, well, maybe Lainey's adopted, you know, so Mm -hmm. um, it would it would um, it would convince a lot more people. I uh, will bet money she will not do a sibling test with Lainey. Okay. Well, we're going to have to take a short break here, but when we come back, uh, we're going to talk a lot more with Kim. We're going to talk more with Michelle as well. And uh, we're going to get into this issue because it is a really, really hot issue right now. It is extremely polarizing uh, on our Facebook and our other social media channels. We're getting just a a wide range of perspectives. And uh, again, it's just something that uh, really, really has uh, folks in Native communities and beyond just really worked up and uh, lots of opinions, lots of perspectives. So if you've got something to add to this conversation, if uh, you want to say something about this uh, recent, recent revelation with regard to Buffy St. Marie, phone lines are open. 1-800-996-2848. Once again, 1-800-996-2848. Hopi musician and community leader Clark Tanakongva plays tribute to Bears Ears Monument on his new album. It features flute, gentle percussion, and vocals in the Hopi language. We'll talk with him about creating the album and catch up on his recent work on environmental conversation. That's on the next Native America Calling. Support by AARP. If someone asks you to buy gift cards to pay off debt, it's a scam. Imposters will claim your social security number's at risk, or your utility company will stop service due to late payments, or you won the lottery and only need to pay some upfront costs. They'll say the fastest way is to buy gift cards and share the numbers on the back. Anyone who tells you to pay a debt with a gift card is a scammer. More information on gift card scams at aarp.org slash gift cards. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Buffy St. Marie is the subject of a recent investigation into her claims of indigenous identity. Share your thoughts. We're at 1-800-996-2848. And make it noted that we did reach out to Buffy St. Marie both directly and through her representatives. We did not hear back by showtime today. Right now, we've got Dr. Kim Tallbear on the line. And Kim, you know, DNA tests, maybe she could get a DNA test. And maybe it might even show she's got a little bit of native ancestry in her. Um, but but at the end of the day, we're talking about somebody who has profited perhaps enormously from being identified as a native person. And uh, for the sake of argument, I mean, let's just say, I mean, 
Would she have gotten this far, do you think, in terms of her brand and her career if uh, she didn't represent herself as, as a Native woman? What do you think? Uh, I mean, I think, you know, her fans have to ask themselves that if she was Beverly Jean Santa Maria, Italian American and English descent settler young woman from Stone in Massachusetts, uh, from would she have would she have played the kind of venue she's played the fifth estate showed in their review of uh, news clippings, you know, from the 1960s, she was being paid 2000 per gig in the 1960s when other folk singers we're being paid about $150 per gig, right? She's playing the venues in Greenwich Village, the New England coffee houses. Uh, she shoots to stardom. She's Billboard's hot new artist in 1964 on the cover of their magazine. Would this have happened if she were Beverly Jean Santa Maria? I think most of us can probably imagine it wouldn't have. Mm -hmm. um, she's crafting an image as a, as a young native woman uh, in a moment when you've got anti-US imperialist uh, protests rising, you've got the environmental movement starting, you've got red power, you've got civil rights movements and Buffy St. Marie crafts an image in which she's at the intersection of all of these things, right? You've got this, these militant Indian images in the news, right? Uh, people with their fists in the air, you've got Iron Eyes Cody crying on TV. So this is a real opportune moment to craft an image as a, Indian in resistance and a very stereotypical looking one at that. And this is the kind of image that non-native, particularly white audiences want to see of native people. Most mm -hmm. of us don't look like that. Most of us don't act like that. Kim, what about people yeah. will say, well, look though, she did speak up for native causes, sometimes to her own detriment. I mean, she was on that FBI watch list. She put money toward causes and scholarships. And I think some people might also say, look, okay, maybe she made a lot of money back in the day. Maybe she broke through with her career with this supposed Native identity. But is it also possible that she opened the door for other Native entertainers, other Native singers and songwriters by being a trailblazer like I mean she was? I think that's a really good question for people who research the arts and music industry to, to, to look into. That's not my specialty. I have been thinking a lot about the kinds of ways in which she's been made into an icon, particularly in Canada. And since moving up here, I've noticed there is a lot of funding for the arts here. Um, it's it's a really different industry, I think, than, than what you are exposed to in the US, which is a much more cutthroat commercialized industry. So I think in part, she's made into an icon in Canada, particularly because of the Canadian state's investment in her, the arts organizations and music industries uh, in investment in her up here. So I think that's also also part of the story of how she's become an icon because I would argue while she is known among a certain age group or set in the United States, she is not nearly as visible as a quote unquote indigenous icon in the US as she is in Canada. So how did that happen up here? I think that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, I have not seen evidence that she was actually blacklisted. I'd like to see that. They didn't get into that in the fifth estate. I know that's what she claims. Um, in terms of what she's given back, I mean, maybe, I, I, I don't know in terms of real dollars what she's given back to Native communities versus what she's been able to appropriate through the kinds of claims she's made. Kim, what can you tell us about her adoption into the Piapot family? It's, it's a family with the last name Piapot. What does that mean to the legitimacy of her claims of Indigenous heritage? Uh, I don't think that lends legitimacy to the claims of indigenous heritage, uh, if you define heritage as, as ancestry, background, and, and, and biological family. Um, I think uh, the, 
customary adoptions are, we have those in my culture too. They are very legitimate. It is a way to claim family. I would never critique, and I haven't heard a lot of people or anybody critique the Piapot family's uh, right to continue claiming Buffy St. Marie as their kin because they, they, they have engaged in that ceremony historically. Um, that does not wipe away the fact that for decades she told stories about being scooped and adopted into a white family. This is a very specific and painful kind of narrative uh, when there's no evidence that that's true. So that ceremonial adoption is legitimate and real. It does not cancel out that history of storytelling that has hurt not only the scooped, but it has clearly caused a lot of grief for other Indigenous people uh, across Canada and, I, and a bit the U.S. as well. All right, let's take a caller now. Mark, who is listening on station WOJB in Red Lake, Wisconsin. Hello, Mark. What's your thought on Buffy St. Marie? Uh, uh, hello, Sean. It's Rice Lake. Just one correction there. But uh, Buffy St. Marie, uh, I hate to go this far on it, but wouldn't that compare to stolen valor of the military? I mean, uh, that's one thing I'm going to shoot out at you. And then the other thing... Uh, I see this time and time again with uh, public figures. Uh, uh, we have Elizabeth Warren. What's ever came of that? Are we accepting of her? So if we're going to accept her, then we have to accept Buffy St. Marie also. Or, uh, or uh, I guess that's it, Sean. I'll leave that comment short and simple. Uh, compare it to stolen valor, and then uh, where do we go? You All right. Know, let's, let's okay, appreciate it. There. So thank you. Thank you, Mark, from Rice Lake, Wisconsin. And Kim, I'm hearing similar comments to to what Mark just said, stolen valor with people who claim to have been military heroes or enlisted service personnel who are not. And uh, of course, like, you know, we all heard about the Rachel Dolezal issue a few years ago, and it just makes me wonder, I mean, what are the parallels there to some of these other cases where um, people have assumed these false identities? I, well, as I said, I, my shock didn't last long when the evidence was revealed to me about her case because it has patterns in common with many other self-indigenization cases that I've examined, right? So the stories of adoption, the shifting narratives, uh, the shifting claims early on in her career to different tribal or First Nation affiliations. These are very common patterns as people evolve their stories and find one that will stick. Um, on the Elizabeth Warren case, this is when I started commenting on these cases. I was called in in 2012 to comment on the possibilities of her taking a DNA test to defend her Cherokee claims. Um, I think where we have settled with Elizabeth Warren and where we eventually settle on most of these cases is once the information sinks in, once the scandal dies down in the media, people largely come to accept that the person was exaggerating or fabricating their claims and they move on. And then we get another breaking case later on in which we have a big media storm around and we have to deal with it all over again and our feelings of surprise grief, uh, you know, defensiveness, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Kim, uh, like I mentioned earlier, the memes, the jokes, uh, we're all hearing them. Do you find any humor in this? Anything to laugh at? Well, I mean, you know, I'm a Dakota person with a, a you know, our history is, uh -huh. I, I don't like to just focus on the trauma because I come from a community where people laugh and we have edifying stories and I have so many people that I look up to that are not celebrities, you know, so many people in my community I'm so impressed with every day, but we do have these these histories of trauma, you know, my people were 
exiled from what is today Minnesota. We had the largest mass execution ever in the United States of 38 Dakota warriors in 1862. So we have a macabre sense of humor. People who have come through this trauma have a macabre sense of humor. And yes, I enjoy the blasphemous memes about everything that natives create blasphemous memes about. And there have been some good ones on this. Ouch, mm -hmm. but good. <laughs> and this whole pretending movement, we just have to go back to that, outing people who can't prove a native bloodline or tribal lineage. What's the impact within the big picture? Is this a good thing for Indian country, do you think? Well, I try not to use the term outing, right? Because claim, falsely claiming native ancestry and all of these other stories is not the same as outing somebody who's LGBTQ, for example. That is something that I think is a much more individual reckoning. Um, there's a lot more individual kind of self-determination involved in your sexual orientation and identity. This is something that is a collective kind of claim that involves the, the First Nation, the community, and the tribe. And we do have to work this out collectively, and we are, and we don't all agree. I think I lost sight of your original question, though. Just exposing people. I, I used the wrong term. Let's use the term exposing people who can't prove a Native bloodline or tribal lineage. In the big picture, is this a, a good thing for Native people, this, this movement? I think we do have a responsibility to bring these stories to the public. I wish that we could do this quietly and behind the scenes, but the very reason these stories reach the media is because arts organizations, academia, government, they won't do anything. As I said earlier, these stories are brewing for years in community. And what I have seen studying this issue is that people in positions of power in institutions will do nothing. They will ignore the problem. It is to their benefit to have these high profile pretendians in their organizations, and they won't do anything until there's embarrassing media. And I want to see us get to the point where we don't have to break these stories all the time, where, where organizations begin to uh, institute policies and procedures that go beyond self-identification. That's where we need to get to. And we are beginning to make progress on that front in academia and Canada, where we are not simply allowing box checking anymore. That's where we're moving and that's where we need to move. Before the CBC investigation became public, Buffy St. Marie released her own preemptive defense on social media. She says in her own words that she is a proud member of the Native American community with deep roots in Canada. Here's an excerpt from that statement that we've edited for the sake of time. I count myself lucky to have had two families to love, a growing up family who were wonderful, and my Pipot family who were also wonderful. But there are also many things I don't know, which I've always been honest about. I don't know where I'm from, who my birth parents are, or how I ended up a, a misfit in a typical white Christian New England town. But I realized decades ago that I would never have the answer to these questions. My growing up mom, who was proud to be part Mi'kmaq, told me many things, including that I was adopted and that I was native. And later in life, as an adult, she also told me some things that I've never shared out of respect for her, that I hate sharing now, including that I may have been born on the wrong side of the blanket. This was her story, and it has never been my place to share it. When I left home at 17, I began to explore the world and who I was on my own. I also found a new family, a chosen family. And they took me in as an adult in accordance with Cree law and traditions, and they claimed me as their own. This has been and always will be my truth. These questions hurt me. They still do, but they also hurt others. They're questions I've struggled with my whole life. So what can I say? I know who I am. I know who I love and who loves me. And I know who claims me. 
And to those who question my truth, I say with love, I know who I am. You can find a link to the full statement by Buffy St. Marie on our website, NativeAmericaCalling.com. Interesting comments there, interesting statements she makes, uh, talking about her birth mother. She mentions her connection to the Piapot Cree First Nation. And Kim, uh, I thought it was especially interesting how she says, born on the wrong side of the blanket. I have no idea what that would even mean. What's your thought? I didn't know what that meant either. I've seen people in the media comment that that's an old timey term that means her mother may have had an affair. Uh, Hmm. Whether it was her, yeah, her birth mother, her alleged birth mother or her alleged adoptive mother. But I think that's what I've heard that means. Uh, Yeah. All right. Thank you, Kim. That's just another aspect to that story. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Certainly is. Let's go ahead and bring Michelle Good into our conversation now. Michelle, thank you again for joining us. You are an author, a retired lawyer, and an activist. You're a member of the Red Pheasant Cree Nation. And uh, please tell us where you're at right now in terms of everything that's happened within the last month. And and what does Buffy St. Marie mean to you? And has that perspective changed? Oh, it's such a tough question. It really is. Um, I, too, had heard rumblings about uh, Buffy's heritage, um, about probably a year, maybe a little longer than that. And my first response was, no, not Buffy. And, you know, I've been involved in a couple of investigations with respect to pretendians, and I've written about the phenomenon. And I see it as um, one of the implements in what I refer to as the colonial toolkit, where it's another way to, to... to have this colonial violence of taking whatever they want. And an indigenous identity was useful to Buffy, so she took it. But my, when, the, when the Fifth Estate Report came out, or actually when it was, uh, um, the, the fact of it was blown by um, another civilian, uh, my first thought was for all the people like myself who first saw Buffy when I was a wee little girl, I'm 67 years old, Um, on the Ed Sullivan show and how my Cree mother and my siblings, we were so proud. We were so proud that here was this person, you know, that we could relate to um, that had made it, you know, was on the same stage as the Beatles, for goodness sakes. And, you know, she has been a role model for people. She has been an encouragement for people. And this case, I think, is quite different from other cases because we thought of her as our auntie, our sister, our cookum, mm-hmm. our comrade in arms. She wasn't just some professor or some uh, legal academic. She was a person that we felt we had a familial and personal relationship with. So my response to it was to focus on um, the fact that all of the things that we felt about Buffy we can keep those feelings. We just can't keep Buffy. You know, our exhilaration, our response, our pride, those are all our feelings. And we can continue to feel them. It's just not about her. It's about what was being expressed. So, okay. I mean, yeah. it, it, I was just heartsick with, with this news. But, you know, as, as a lawyer, as a retired lawyer, um, you know, the documents, the evidence, the weight of the information that's available to us, is what carries the day in my mind. 
Michelle, this is another perspective I've heard, and I'd love to get your take. Um, this outpouring of animosity, of anger, even hatred toward someone whose biggest crime, according to some people, was just wanting to be one of us, just wanting to be Native. Is, is that the Native way to respond like that? What's your thought? Well, I don't think that there's any such thing as one Native way. I think we all have very different ways of being in the world um, in, you know, many capacities. But it's this is not a victimless act because it's not just a bunch of individuals that are doing this. There are whole groups of people that are trying to claim Indigenous status. Um, they're trying to say that, you know, they're trying to, like, uh, you know, to incorporate uh, uh, under under Canadian law a group and call it an Indian band, which is what we refer to as tribes here mm-hmm. in Canada. We're going to take another break, and uh, phone lines are still open, folks. So if you've got a take on this, if you think Buffy St. Marie is a hero, if you think she's a fraud, uh, or anything in the middle, let us know. 1-800-99-NATIVE. Does your club, institution, or other group need custom-branded apparel? A wide variety of t-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom-printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. Native American-made gifts at Ho-Chunk Inc.'s Sweetgrass Trading Co. include food, beauty, and wellness items from across Turtle Island. Christmas delivery available for orders placed by December 18th at sweetgrasstradingco.com. Ho-Chunk Inc. supports this show. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're continuing our conversation about an investigation calling into question Buffy St. Marie's indigenous identity. Let's take a caller, Chanupa, up in Pine Ridge, South Dakota, listening on Keeley. Chanupa, what's your thought? Hey, whooping up Kunkka for this episode of Identity Fraud and Theft. And to the attorney lady, whooping up for looking into these matters. You know, I want to uh, contribute this because many people in the music industry claimed indigenous, you know, identity, the blood, and so forth. One of them was um, Loretta Lynn, the country singer who paved her way to stardom. And so was Cher, okay? Cher and uh, Bono, Tony Bono, they did all this thing. And remember, Cher came out with a song called Half Breed. Both sides were against me since the day I was born. She came out with that song. But ironically, two of the greatest heavy metal musicians claimed their identity, and they found it. One of them was Blackie Lawless from Wasp, and the second one was Chuck Chuck Billy of the band Testament. His native roots are from down there in Diné country. And Blackie Lawless's native roots are from up there in Browning, Montana. He's part Blackfoot. So this is the thing that goes on in Indian country. But don't forget now, remember one of the ex-presidents, I think it might have been George Bush, he claimed to be, you know, indigenous too. These things are really, man, problematic when it comes to that kind of fair intentment to indigenous people. So thank you, attorney lady, for doing what you're doing to expose this and as far as Buffy St. Mary, I can't really comment on that because a lot of times during the movement, don't forget, Chinupa was the bodyguard to Lehman Brightman and Russell Means. 
And these guys were very, you know, problematic to people claiming indigenous identity, theft, and fraud. Back to you, Sean, and thank you for a great episode. Wopila from Pine Ridge. Aho! Thank you, Chanupa. Appreciate that call. And uh, Chanupa mentions Chuck Billy. Uh, Chuck Billy is actually Pomo from the band Testament. And uh, let's take another caller, Gracie, who's listening online in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Hello, Gracie. How are you doing, Gracie? Um, I was just calling to, I'm doing good. I was just calling to say thank you to Dr. Kim Tallbearer and thank you to Michelle Good for the work that you did in both the Fifth Estate and even now, um, just coming from uh, coming from here as a Native woman artist and how affected how affected we all are as artists when we come from a gig culture and that we're relying on this income to continue our cultural continuity um, for our families and for, for our kin. And I also, I wanted to um, just, I, I'm not Canadian native, but I wonder how this affects the reparations for native Canadians as we all have a political relationship with the, with the government. And I wonder that if, um, if she has had, and I know that she's gotten a Juno award, but I wonder if there's been any, other funding sources that were supposed to go to those um, reparations, especially um, the claims of being a scoop baby and and other things, because I feel like um, I know and I really appreciate Michelle Good's comment that we all have our own agency on, on how we claim ourselves to be Native and people from the earth. Um, but I, I wonder that has it gone too far to talk about adoption, that the sacredness of, of adoption is, is quite important for all of our communities. Um, however, it's gotten to a point where it's too far, um, where these people can appropriate our, our way of life and, and appropriate means of income. But thank you, everybody, and thank you, Sean, for, for um, this episode. Well, thank you, Gracie. That's a great call. And, and you mentioned these reparations. And uh, so all the awards that, that Buffy St. Marie has all earned throughout her lifetime, Buffy, uh, uh, the she earned as well, perhaps uh, all of that was earned unlawfully or at least uh, through false identity. Um, hard to say. Michelle, what's your thought? in terms of reparations going forward to some of these artists. Uh, for instance, the Juno Award, somebody else didn't get that award, she got it. Michelle, are you there? Michelle, are you there? Terribly. Hello? I'm sorry, Michelle. Yeah, I'm sorry, Michelle. Yeah, we're having some technical issues today. I'm sorry, but I just wanted to, if you heard that call or those comments with regard to reparations for Buffy, uh, any awards or any income or any other issues that, that Buffy, Buffy St. Marie might have benefited from simply because of this Native identity that was presumed. Oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm certain that there are many things that she received. But I don't know that we can conflate those with reparations. I don't believe she would have received compensation for having been a 60-scoop kid, for example, which is different than receiving a grant or an award, You know, even though that there are often uh, financial benefits associated to that. That's not to say that it's right or it's okay. And what I was trying to say before we had our little tech difficulty there was, 
you know, that when she won the Juno, there was a young Inuit woman who was nominated for that Juno as well. And, uh, uh, you know, but she was up against the, the great Buffy. She didn't win, obviously. And within a year, she was gone by suicide. And of course, we can't, you know, say that uh, with any certainty that that was the reason, but how different her life might have been if she had not had Buffy in that same category. But I think one of the most important things about this, there was recently following the um, the uh, the story about Buffy on the on the Fifth Estate, there was a fellow, uh, an academic, who wrote a piece in the Globe and Mail. Um, supporting the notion that you don't have to have any Indigenous blood in order to be Indigenous. And this was an Indigenous man. He's an American. And, you know, this kind of conversation, when it starts getting into, uh, you know, that kind of sort of airy uh, analysis where it's more philosophical than uh, than real, is is promoting a notion that we can't identify ourselves, that we don't have an identity that is different from a person who has claimed that identity or is just simply not Indigenous at all. And that's mm-hmm. dangerous. That's so, so dangerous. Um, and You know, you know Michelle, it's, yeah, it, it's not just, I'm sorry, it's not just dangerous, but, but I feel it on some level, like as a Native person, it's embarrassing because it, it really undermines the, the strength of native identity, and it really calls into the question the future of our identity. Absolutely, your... absolutely. Yeah. Uh. So you know, so these these are this is not something that you know. I I drew an analogy in my last book in my essay on pretendians about um, about native plants, indigenous plants, and they are defined as plants that existed here prior to European colonization. They also refer to naturalized plants, okay? Those are plants that were able to be embraced by the environment and not do harm. And then there's the invasive species that destroy everything around them. And I use that analogy, okay? The indigenous plants are us, are us who were here before European colonization. The natural plants, naturalized plants, are like naturalized citizens, people who have been adopted through culture and protocol and ceremony into an indigenous community, but it doesn't make them indigenous. And then there's the invasive species that claims identity without any basis, either through, uh, you know, blood or, you know, membership or kinship. And, you know, they are the equivalent of the invasive species destroying so much through these acts. Oh, really good insights, Michelle. And let's talk again about, let's talk about Buffy's, her legacy. Here she is. She's more than 80 years old. Uh, going forward, where do you think, what do you see happening? Do you think she's going to get completely canceled now? She's certainly got some supporters out there. Where do you see her legacy ultimately unfolding? Well, sadly, I see her legacy as turning into being a divisive force. And that's the thing that bothers me the most about this is that it's, it's like divide and conquer among Indigenous people because people feel a loyalty to her. They want to believe her. Um, you know, some groups are supporting her because they don't want to cast doubt on the claims of legitimate, you know, scoop survivors or, you know, adoption survivors and so on. 
um, you know, and it just creates this this division where we are we are arguing with each other instead of <laughs> her accepting responsibility. And I think that if she would just stand up, you know, just stand up and do the right thing and tell us the truth, which of course she won't, uh, probably for fear of liability or whatever. Um, I think it would go a long way to healing this. But she's this this act, you know, like what a sixty-year scam, okay, has hurt so many people and served to to divide communities as opposed to bringing them together. Kim, where do you see like Buffy's legacy going, and what would you like to hear or see her do? Um, you know, I, it's hard for me to comment on her legacy because I was never a big fan. Um, what I'd like to hear or see her do as a Native person who's invested in these issues personally and professionally is, you know, and we never see this uh, when people get caught doing these things. I would like to hear an apology. I would, uh, you know, I'd like to hear a, a fully truthful accounting, somebody come to terms with what they have done try to dig into themselves and ask themselves why they did what they did. Um, and, you know, a real deep apology. And I, I've never seen that happen. It, it never, when people, the only people who ever stop doing this are the people who they found out earlier on before they, before they built a career. There are people who genuinely grew up thinking they were native through family stories, and then they discover that's not true. And then they don't go down the path of claiming it and building a career on it. I don't think we know if she genuinely grew up hearing that. I'm not convinced. I think it could be that she just fabricated fabricated it because it was a, a great opportunity. So I would like to hear a really full and deep apology and explanation, and I don't think that will happen. And as native people going forward, how do we get through this whole pretend issue? Is that one for me? Yeah, Michelle. <laughs> yeah. What do you think? For Kim or Michelle? For, for, for Kim. I'm sorry, for Kim. Okay, okay, okay. Um, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about this. I This idea that she is this icon, this standard bearer, this example of Native excellence. I would like to see us as Native people stop being complicit in settler celebrity culture. You know, the people that inspire me, I can think of off the top of my head. There, I know a two-spirit elder who I have seen uh, help bring youth, queer and two-spirit youth into ceremony and community. Just one of the most impressive, loving people I've ever met. I think about my uncle Ronnie, who's got an incredible sense of humor and tells family stories. I can think about my colleague, Jessica Kolopenik, who's a brilliant Cree political theorist. My child, who's like a loving little light in this world. We all have people in our families, in our communities, in our tribes who we don't have to put them on pedestals and make them into heroes. We're all humans and we're all fallible, but we do have people around us that are that are amazing and affirming who we care about. We don't need to have celebrity worship. That is not where we need to go. And so the lesson I'd like us to take out of this is to stop the celebrity worship and focus on the people closer to us who we can take inspiration from, you know, who we who we care about and love and who we can admire in smaller ways, in diverse ways. And Kim, to anybody listening right now who might be falsifying their Indigenous heritage, what do you want to say to them? Uh, if you go too far down that road, you are never going to come back. Uh, I think people eventually uh, get so invested in that. Uh, and so I would like people, before they've gone down that road and built a career, uh, taken those opportunities from actual Native people, 
be careful and think about this. Our institutions are responding. Uh, there are more of these cases coming. This will not be as easy to get away with. Uh, and that I'm working with a lot of people who are trying to make sure of that. Michelle, same question. What do you want to say to people falsifying Indigenous heritage? Just don't do it. <laughs> if you have talent and skills and abilities, why do you have to do it in red face? Why do you need to take something that not only belongs to somebody else, but that the taking itself does so much harm? Why do you have to do that? Do it on your own record. Do it on your own abilities. And, you know, I have to agree 100% with Kim. Um, you know, identifying pretendians, the, the critical importance of that is being, uh, uh, has a deeper understanding as we move forward. And it is becoming, people are looking for institutional, institutionalized ways to prevent this. And I think that will continue uh, and grow in the future. Well, certainly an interesting topic to consider, interesting thoughts, interesting discussion. Kim, anything else you want to add? we got about a minute before we have to wrap up. Uh, just that I really appreciate Michelle's comments, and I really do like that analogy of the uh, indigenous versus naturalized plants. I, I teach a unit on botanical colonization, and I think that's a really great analogy. So thank you for that, Michelle. And Michelle, how about you? Any other words, any other comments? Well, I just want people to just calm down and not be hurt by this and, you know, turn to our own healers and helpers and advisors and just, you know, whether she is or she isn't, it shouldn't hurt us. Well, folks, we are going to have to wrap up this conversation. It has been a good one. And I want to give thanks to our two guests today, Dr. Kim Talbear and Michelle Good, as well as the callers who have joined our conversation. And uh, please keep the social media engagement going. We've had a lot of comments on this issue on our Facebook and on our Instagram. So keep them coming. Just because the discussion ends now on the air doesn't mean it doesn't have, it can't continue online. So please engage with us. And also join us tomorrow for a conversation with Hopi musician and community leader, Clark Tenuangva. You've been listening to the one, the only Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. How metake piki, which shows on a Awaki Glag Unwo, Nitiwahe, Nawichotiki, Oichakiao, each Ikaho, Pejuta, Glustam, Ptacha, RSV, seasonal flu, and a COVID 19, Wichakaho, Pejuta, Ikichokihipelo, Isama Soleachi Hunter, La Kozani, Wawoki Oti El Yayo, Nis Wichakahopi, Pejuta, Dot Gov El Yayo, Lewot Haniki, Medicare and Medicaid Otiatahiapelo, the Association on American Indian Affairs welcomes all to Tribal Museums Day, December 2nd through the 10th. Tribal museums may offer no cost or reduced admission, art markets, and cultural demonstrations. Tribal Museums Day honors Native nations as the experts of their diverse cultures. A map of tribal museums and more is available at Indian-Affairs.org slash Tribal Museums Day. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this show. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. 
Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.